Hi, non-investment advice listeners. Uh, have a special guest today, uh, Ted Joya, one of uh, the preeminent music historians. Um, also writes an incredible Substack called The Honest Broker. I highly recommend everybody to check that out. We'll be putting that in the show notes. But uh, the reason I brought Ted on today was because Ted has a background in business. Uh, he has an MBA from Stanford, worked as a consultant, uh, and was at one time, I believe you called it a futurist. So I was curious to know how this combination of business knowledge and being literally one of the top music historians in the world, that Venn diagram, what that's done for your view on culture, music, entertainment. Well, my past history is very strange. And people sometimes ask me to explain what I've done. And I say, please, don't, don't even try to, to understand it because I've taken so many zigzags uh, in my life. But basically, I uh, had two careers going on. I was a jazz musician, and I wrote about jazz, uh, but then I went off to, to Oxford. I got a degree in philosophy, politics, and economics. Uh, then I went to Stanford Business School, and all this time, I'm making money on the side playing jazz, and I have my little jazz projects. And after business school, I, I had this crazy life where I would do business things, then I would do jazz. And, I, I, would, I, I dropped out of consulting. I left the Boston Consulting Group to teach jazz at Stanford. Uh, I ran a record label. I worked for McKinsey for a while. And I'll be honest, for many years, I felt guilty about this. And the reason I felt guilty is that I looked at this amazing training I had gotten. I had gotten probably one of the best ed educations you could ever get in finance and business and projecting trends and analyzing social situations and economic situations. And I felt I hadn't made good use of it. I said to myself, you know, the, they shouldn't have accepted me at the business school. They should have given my spot to someone more worthy. But here's the strange thing. I, I, at a certain point, I started focusing full-time on music writing and I learned to my surprise that the analytical tools I had applied uh, in all these business situations, economic situations, and trying to forecast product launches and trend analysis, I found it actually it was extraordinarily relevant to music and culture. Because as you well know, our music and culture now is driven by technology. It's driven by technology shifts, and it's controlled by uh, big business. I mean, for example, people ask me, Ted, who's the most important person in music? I said, well, the two most important people in music will always be the CEO of Apple and the CEO of Google. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, as strange as it sounds, they have more influence on our musical culture than Kanye West or Billie Eilish or whatever. And so in, in a strange sort of way, I mean, you mentioned my Substack, The Honest Broker. I just launched an analysis this morning, which I sent out to my subscribers on the strange phenomenon we have that old songs are dominating musical culture. Old songs now represent 72% of music consumption in the United States. And this is a classic example where I'm able to use my analytical background to analyze something that's happening in the entertainment and artistic culture. Absolutely. This is a running theme uh, of yours. I know there's a very famous article last year that you wrote, uh, old music is uh, kind of destroying or eating new music. I got, so that you, you gave the number there about the 70% of, uh, I guess, the popularity of 
the current music is quote unquote old music. But why is that important? I mean, you've written about it, but I'd love for you to articulate it on the podcast for our listeners. Why is it a big deal that old music is eating new music? Well, for many years, we just assumed that everything in the culture would be dominated by what's new. If you look at the best-selling books throughout my entire life, they've always been new books. The best-selling books are the ones that just came out. The best-selling movies are the new movies. Every place you look in the culture, what's new is the biggest seller. And we tend to assume this has always been the case. And it has for 100 years or more. But there are periods of history in which what's new is no longer dominant. In fact, what's old becomes respected. When the medieval period in Europe, for almost a thousand years, people looked back to the, to the past world. And even the Renaissance started as imitating ancient Roman, ancient Greece. The idea was they did it better back in the old days, so let's just imitate it. And that's now happening in our own culture. I mean, I'll just give a few examples. If you look at the 10 biggest budgeted films of the year, Every one of them is either a reboot, a remake, a sequel, a prequel, or some brand extension. Every one of them. So there's this idea that the old stories are the best. Let's stick with them. And then you look at music now, where 70% plus of the music consumption is old songs. And here's the analogy I give. Here's the analogy I give. And it's sort of an, <laughs> it's an unsettling analogy. In the year... 312 AD, the Roman Senate decided they needed a monument for Emperor Constantine. He just had this military victory, and they were going to construct the Arch of Constantine in Rome. But there was a little problem. There was nobody alive that could do the sculpture and the artistic work they needed. So what they had to do is rob artwork from other monuments. So they stole sculptures from the monument to Trajan and Hadrian and Marcus Aurelius, and they put this huge hodgepodge. So this, you have this, the Arch of Constantine, but it's just a hodgepodge of old things they've juxtaposed against each other because they had lost the skill to innovate. Now, if I tell you this, people will say, well, that, that could never happen now. We live in a, in, a, in a culture that's obsessed with innovation. And that is true in the tech industry. That's true in Silicon Valley, but for some reason, the entertainment industry now is caught in this time loop where they're more interested in what happened in the past than what, what's happening now. So just one more example. You look at the, the leading actors now. Harrison Ford turned 80 yesterday, and he, he's going to make his new Indiana Jones movie. The biggest film this year is Top Gun, which is a, 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 a remake of something Tom Cruise did in the mid-1980s. So even if you look at, at, at the actors, the Ringer recently did this analysis, the leading actors in movies are getting older and older and older each year. I saw that. It was amazing. So it's, it's not an exaggeration on my point. For some reason, the culture has become backward looking. It's become obsessed with the past. And sure, it's entertaining, but what's the end result of this? And I have an ominous feeling that it's, it's a sign of stagnation and it will start in arts and entertainment but it will spread to the rest of the culture as well. Right. It starts in art and entertainment because that's the home of creativity, which is what you wrote, right? And then if you start looking back in every other industry, now no one's going to be looking forward. Yeah, no, if you can't foster creativity in arts and entertainment, where can you? I mean, the, the lifeblood 
of arts and entertainment is new talent, fresh perspectives, uh, but there's no investment in that. And if you just look where the dollars are spent, I'll give one more example here. The biggest area of investment in music is buying the publishing rights of old songs. Last year, investment groups and corporations spent $5 billion buying up the rights to old songs. Now, I don't know what they spend on launching new artists, but it would be a fraction of that. It would be a tiny fraction of that. So it starts with the investment dollars. If you invest in the past rather than the future, what's the end point? And I'm, I'm afraid we're going to find out. You know, we're going to you know, extrapolate out five, 10 years now. We will see what happens when the whole arts and entertainment economy has invested in old things. So, you know, I mean, just one obvious thing is these song copyrights expire. And these investment yeah. groups are, are so, well, we're going to make all this money off songs, but in 5, 10, 15 years, they're going to start getting a little nervous it's, because uh, their cash flow streams are all based on a, a depleting asset. So it's, uh, it's a version, and this is putting on your kind of management consulting hat. Of, you know how PE firms will go in and buy an established company, and they'll just milk the cash flow, right? If uh, McKinsey obviously has the famous, or I think BCG created the cash flow model, the cash cow model. So sure. if you go into a business, and there's one part of the business, which is, you know, well, let's take uh, Netflix, for example. If 20 years ago, they're like, hey, this uh, streaming stuff sounds interesting, but it caused a huge investment. But we have this kind of cash cow uh, DVD business. Let's just milk this DVD business and as far as we can. And so this is what you're describing, though, this mindset, uh, especially with the hedge funds buying these old catalogs, it's literally going to bite them in the ass 10 years from now, right? Absolutely. I've lived through this. I've been involved in LBOs. I, I've, I've dealt with all this. I, mean, I remember once affiliated with this company that all of a sudden hit a, a brick wall. And, and, and had very flat performance. It was very uninspiring. But the surprising thing is in the next three weeks, 30 financial outfits phoned up and said, you know, we'd like to invest in your business. Now, this makes no sense. You know, at first glance, it makes no sense. The company was successful, and now the, the prospects are just sort of flat and ugly. Why would people want to invest in it? But it's precisely the mindset you explained, is their whole idea is, okay, this is a business we can buy and we won't invest anything. And we'll just squeeze out every last drop. And they actually look uh, for these, these, these potential problems and then their involvement actually makes the problem worse. And obviously, if you buy a business that's sort of at this crossroads and its prospects flattened out, there are two solutions. One is you can fix the problems and get back to growth or you can buy and just squeeze every last drop of blood in it. And I've seen this happen in the creative culture. I mean, the obvious example is newspapers. You know, all these, all these vultures have, have swarmed on the newspapers. And it's not a good sign when some of these people buy up your, your, your hometown newspaper because it's the, it's the same strategy. So I fear a creative culture that shifts from growth, innovation, fresh ideas, and new talent to one which looks like milking old ideas till they're dead. I mean, that's, that could almost be the Disney motto. Yeah. You know, if Disney had a corporate motto, it could be, we milk the old <laughs> ideas till they're dead. We keep that mouse in our mouse trap and we'll, ne we'll never let him go. We'll just give him a little cheese now and then. You know, uh, to the, the, the counter to this argument that you've kind of made and that you've laid out, 
that looking back has uh, its flaws, maybe a sign of decadence and the potential fall, future fall of society is this idea of Lindy, right? Like the best documents are the ones that have lasted or the ones that people keep going back to. So there's a reason people keep going back to Socrates or the teach or uh, East Asia, the teachings of Confucius, right? These, they've proven to be Lindy, uh, the idea that the longer something has existed, the longer it'll continue to exist. So what would your counter to that be where are we, we're looking back because, you know, these stories, these structures, obviously the hero's journey has uh, been around for 2,000 years. Why not continue milking those things if they have resonance with society? Well, I live with this all the time. You know, a, a decade ago, I ran a website called jazz.com. And I was, uh, the, uh, the guy bought this website, jazz.com. I, you know, costly to get that web address and put me in charge of it. And, and so I launched a, a website that covered the music. And the first question I had to ask myself is how much do I focus on old music and how much do I focus on new music? And as I thought it over, it's a judgment call, but I reached the decision to do 50-50. And back then, that was actually way too heavily weighted towards old stuff. I think most people would say, well, Ted, you should do 70-30 new. But I figured, okay, we will have equal weighting to the tradition, the culture, and the legacy, and then equal weighting to building the future. And I would be comfortable with a culture like that. But we're now at 70-30. You know, 70% of, of the Hollywood investment is reboots and, and sequels. 70% of the music is old. 70% of everything now seems to be backward looking. I'm the, I'm the first to believe in the past. I devoted my whole youth to studying traditional cultures. There was a period in my life where I, for a decade where I almost never read a book by a living author. I mean, I was just, I mean, I was Shakespeare, Dante, Plato, Aristotle, Milton, Petrarch, you know, every, and I just, I, I lived in the culture. And then once I got, the funny thing is I do it differently than most people. Most people listen to the new things when they're younger and when they, they get older, they get stuck in the past. And I, I did it very differently. My youth, I soaked up the traditions. And then when I got into my middle period of my life, I started focusing on new things, saying, well, I now have a perspective. Because I've studied the history of music, I can listen to the new stuff and understand it. Because I've studied the history of literature, I can read the new stuff and understand it. So I'm very supportive of people that want to, to dig into the best of the past. But is the best of the past really Barbie? Is the best of the past really a movie based on the Jungle Cruise? Is the, I mean, I, and so, if you were making a case to me, well, Ted, they're, 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 they're rebooting Shakespeare or something. <laughs> okay, I get Confucius. Okay, I, I, can, <laughs> I, I, can, I can buy into that. But the sad thing is, is we, we're completely shifted to the old stuff, and it's not necessarily the best of the old stuff. This is, you know, and, and I'm not one of these people to say the sky is falling, but this is an ominous trend. And if we don't recognize it, it will get worse, not better. I think there's a, a parallel in science. You know the famous quote where science advances one funeral at a time? Yes. So would that apply to the uh, entertainment, though? Because uh, the concern I'd have is, as you mentioned, the platforms are running entertainment at the end of the day. The CEO of Apple, CEO of Google, the two most important people in, in music and probably entertainment more broadly. So the question then becomes, if the algorithms are feeding people what they want, and you've talked about this in the past uh, 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 quite a bit, is... They're determining what's being fed. 
So there's actually not that mechanism where science is advancing one funeral at a time, right? It's like the people that are actually long gone, their content will still be front and center. So how do you how do you uh, resolve that issue? Like, what are even the resolutions? Well, I, th- this is this is a difficult question to solve because there's so many moving parts. Uh, I try to do what I can to to introduce people to new sounds and new ideas outside the monolithic culture. Uh, I, I, I've devoted my life to this. You know, at a very young age, I started advocating for jazz, blues, world music, a bunch of, of, of niche genres. Uh, and, and I try to champion things outside of the monolithic culture. But what we need is more people to do this, and especially people with deep pockets. Because... Every day in this country, someone donates five, 10, 20 million dollars to some institution. And they should ask some hard questions. Because, you know, I've, I've outlined a lot of ways where you could revitalize and rejuvenate our culture, but all of them take dollars. Yeah. And so the starting point is with the people that have the deep pockets or, or control the budgets. We've got to get away from this mindset where we just invest in the past. I mean, for example, in my field, the music industry, the record labels stopped investing in technology in the 1980s. And now they're even uh, beginning to stop investing in new arts. They should look in the mirror every morning, take a hard look at the Mr. Mr. and Mrs. CEO, whoever's running these enterprises. They should look in the mirror and ask themselves some hard questions every day about what they're doing in the long-term impact. So that's you know, people like you and I, we, we can um, raise issues. We can create awareness. We can advocate. We can ask tough, hard questions. But ultimately, the power brokers need to change their behavior or we're going to dig ourselves into a deep cultural hole. And I don't want to get cliche, but it is at the end, ultimately, it is short-term thinking and money, right? This is, those are the impediments to this longer-term thinking that you're speaking of. It would take somebody quite a long time. Yeah, you know, when, when I started doing business projects in my 20s, and I remember I was at the Boston Consulting Group then, and, and, and someone older and wiser me said, Ted, you want to solve what's happening in any industry? Just follow the money. Just follow the money. And I found when I got into journalism and I was researching stories, it's the same thing. You follow the money. And even when you get to something like creativity, a song, a movie, a book, you follow the money. So I look in the book business now. There's all these mergers. There are five companies now that control publishing. Used to be 20 or 30. You look in the movie industry and you see where they're spending the money. So until... Until the cash allocations change, there will be no solution to this problem. There just won't. So, which is why it makes it such a pickle. And I'll actually bring up a, a, something I read from one of your past um, substacks. Again, I cannot recommend this thing. It's incredible. But the example you brought up as to why this type of thinking uh, for, let's just call them the record execs, where they are thinking about today what's the best way to milk it is when you look at the most important acts of the 20th century, they came from niches and corners of the world where you would never have thought to look Beatles from Liverpool, Elvis from Mississippi, uh, 
obviously NWA from from Cobden. I know you were born in uh, in Southern uh, Los Angeles. I believe that's correct. Um, yeah, that's right. Not very far from Compton, actually. Not very. So, I would love for you to expound on the inability to look at these corners and and and, and actually just to explain like how unlikely it was for the, these groups to have succeeded. Well, this gets back to my long-standing role as a music historian. I mean, this is how I made my name, is as a music historian. And I began applying the analytical tools I had learned in Silicon Valley and doing this futurism to music. And I began asking hard questions about where does musical innovation come from? And I mean, there were all sorts of fascinating things. I mean, I'll give one example. When, when I was studying the, the uh, diffusion and innovation, I actually studied it from the people that invented this whole field, you know, Stanford. I mean, they actually, they were the ones that, that figured out how things went viral or whatever. And there's certain formulas you can use to predict a trend. So if, if somebody introduces a new technology and it begins selling, how do you predict where it's going to go in five years, 10 years? And there are these my financial models, these mathematical models, and I learned them. And at some point, somebody told me, said, Ted, you know where these models came from? And I said, no, I don't know. Said, these came from tracking diseases, tracking viruses and diseases. They had to predict if, if uh, so many people have COVID this week, how many people will have it next week? And that's where these mathematical models came from. So it's genuinely true that things go viral. They actually go viral. And the odd thing is that the conditions that create innovation and art are the same ones that create disease. So in many ways, it, it's cities that have a bunch of people coming together from all over the world and mixing at close quarters. So when people ask me, why was jazz invented in New Orleans? It's because New Orleans was the most diverse city of its day, also very unhealthy. It was a port for the Mississippi River. It was a trade hub. You had the Spanish influence. You had the French influence. You had the Caribbean influence. You had slaves from Africa. And they all mixed together in New Orleans in a very unhealthy atmosphere. The end result was a lot of disease and people dying in their 30s. But jazz came out of that. And then I started seeing this everywhere. Everywhere where you found a major artistic innovation, it was always like a port city. It was always... Uh, a borderland. It was some place where people gathered together from different cultures. I even trace this back to ancient Egypt. There was a village where the love song was born, and it was the most diverse village in the world probably back then, because they had all the artisans working on the pyramids from different cultures and communities mixing together. Same thing happened with the Beatles. Didn't come out of London or Buckingham Palace. The British invasion came out of Liverpool, a port city, very poor, where people came into the culture. Ancient Greece culture came out of Lesbos and Sappho. That's where the lyric was born, which was a gateway into Europe. Even a, a few years ago, the Syrian refugees were all starting, uh, ending up on Lesbos, the same island where the Greek lyric was born. It's no coincidence because it was the gateway to Europe a thousand, two thousand years ago and still is today. Opera came out of Venice, which was the leading port of its day. The troubadour revolution in Europe came out of the south of France where he borrowed from Spain with things coming in through Africa. So basically, innovation comes from the outside, often from the marginalized outside, often from the poor outside. And that's why 
when you have this monolithic culture that doesn't bring in new, fresh voices, it will stagnate because you constantly need to have those outsiders coming into the dialogue. I love that. And that actually is a very concrete reason, right? If you were to explain why is counterculture important, it's because it, literally these ideas that would not otherwise be surfaced. I think one of my favorites personally was uh, Coppola and, uh, and, um, and Lucas and Spielberg, that whole team, they, they wanted to get away from the studio system. So they kind of congregated together and uh, all helped each other in the 70s. And uh, as you probably well know, the story behind The Godfather, the, the hoops that Coppola had to go through to make that movie. And now it's widely considered the greatest film ever. Paramount fought him every step along the way. Or look at Spielberg. Spielberg's a dropout. He could not get accepted at film school. Where do you go, like Cal State Long Beach? He could not get into any major program. The number of people who are outsiders that create innovations is amazing. Well, even in tech, Bill Gates dropped out of college. Zuckerberg dropped out of college. If you go through the biggest innovators of the century, even in technology, where you think you would have these glittering degrees, an extraordinary amount was created by dropouts. And that's true of every aspect of culture. You know, I went to Stanford as an undergraduate. And they were very proud of John Steinbeck because he, he won the Nobel Prize in Literature, the only Nobel Prize winner in literature from Stanford, but he dropped out. And, and the same thing as Kerouac dropped out of Columbia. I mean, you just go through, go through the list of the great authors of the century, the great musicians, well, the musicians are even worse. You know, John Lennon dropped out of art school. John, uh, Mick Jagger dropped out of London School of Economics. You know, you just go through, the culture never comes from the insiders. It never does. And if we create a society in which these powerful insiders make all the decisions, they're going to lose the lifeblood to create the next generation of talent, and innovation, and, and beneficial change. That really rings uh, strong for me, and it kind of the, the one-liner of why it's important. And uh, I actually want to get back to the music, because I read a passage from one of your books, which was phenomenal, a hormone called oxytocin. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's known as... Uh, I believe it's known as the love hormone. As I mentioned, I've always tried to dig into why is music important? Why is it a key part of our society? Why do people like certain songs? And a few years back, I wrote a history of the love song. But I'm, I was looking in, into these, these hormones that, that are released in the body when we sing. And they have a, a very interesting thing is they make you more trustworthy of the people that are around you. That's why countries have national anthems. That's why labor unions have their songs. That's why sports teams have their songs. And it's also why when you go out on a date, you go on a date to a music club or dancing order because the music brings you together with the people you're around. And so if, if you don't understand these things, you don't realize how essential and closely connected the musical culture is to other things. I often tell people, I said, many of us are here today because of a song. If our parents hadn't heard a song, we might not be here today. And, and, and so music is powerful. Culture is powerful. Music creates body changes of all sorts. It makes us healthier. You know, if you, if you look Barry Bitton studied drummers in a drum circle and found that after 10 minutes of drumming, their immune system got stronger. Andrew Neer studied the brain waves and found that if you listen to music after a while, your brain waves begin to match the rhythms of the music. It opens you up to altered mind states and transcendent experiences. 
for many of us, music is the is the only really altered mind state we'll ever achieve. I mean, some of, I mean people that use all these chemicals and and all and uh, you know narcotics, you know they have they have fast tracks to it. And, you know, I don't I don't play in that game. So for someone like me, music is my altered mind state. It is my source of ecstasy and transcendence. So these are these are good things to have in culture. And when they start to stagnate, there's a price. There's a price to be paid for. So the, the, the music, the rhythm of the music, something you said actually really struck with me because uh, you had said in a previous podcast that when you actually go to a concert, when the artists are playing their concerts live, they stretch it. Like I'll go, I, went, I, I remember this, I went to U2 or Coldplay, there are hits that I remember listening hundreds of thousands of times. They'll do their version, which is twice as long, right? They'll play the guitar to lead up to it. Is this all uh, you think for the same ideas where it takes time to build up these chemicals? The scientific literature is very clear, is that music begins to impact our body, but it doesn't happen instantaneously. You have to listen to a song for around 10 minutes before your body chemistry begins to change, your brain waves begin to change. And the curious thing is I saw this substantiated in music history as well. For a long time, I was working on a book called Healing Songs which I published in 2006, which is the history of music in healing. And to research this, I dug into shamanism, where the shamans are the healers, and you find them everywhere. The, the classic examples come out of Siberia, where the, where the shamans were very prominent. But people found shamanism in Africa, um, among Australian Aboriginal culture, among Native American societies. Uh, throughout Asia, even in Europe in the old days. And the shaman would play the drum, usually play the drum, fall into a trance, and often during the trance would have visions, could heal people. And people tend to dismiss this as, well, it's all mumbo-jumbo, there's no science. But in fact, the literature in almost every case tells you that the shaman did not get into this amazing trance until about 10 minutes. And then had these extraordinary powers that, that were not their day-to-day. And this, it's actually pretty close to what the scientific literature will tell you. That, you know, the, the music will change your body after 10 minutes, will make you healthier, will make you stronger. I mean, all, all these, these folkloric beliefs we have that we tend to dismiss are actually validated. Well, let's now apply it to popular music. All of us instinctively understand that the songs need to be more than three minutes. That's why when you listen to your favorite song in the last three minutes, when it's done, you play it over again. Yeah. I'll repeat. Because, you know, when you really are beginning to get your mind into that that mindset, three minutes is not enough. And I believe bands understand this instinctively. So when they perform live in concert, they play longer. They always take their hit song. And when they give a concert, it gets longer. And this is because they understand. Maybe they haven't done the research I've done, but they understand that you don't have enough power of the song after if you enter it after three minutes and it, and really five seven eight nine ten minutes you're changing the body chemistry and, and the brain waves and and the and these these hormones are released people get into the state of ecstasy but you can't do it very quickly that's why i'm a little skeptical of this idea that tiktok is going to revolutionize the world with 10 or 20 second songs because that's not enough we crave more we crave more I have a great example of the concert one you just mentioned. I'd love to also hear your uh, favorite kind of song stretched out. I, uh, I saw Jay-Z and Kanye in 2011 in Vancouver. 
and they played the song N-Words in Paris 11 times in a row. It was an hour straight. And it was, a, it was a running joke on their tour. And finally, when they got to Paris, they broke the record. They did it for like 90 minutes. And uh, I'm wondering if you had a, a story of an artist that had played one song just for like an hour, and you're like, this is the greatest thing ever. Well, this is a moment that changed my life. I was in high school. Okay. I was a musician. I played piano. And I took lessons like all kids did and learned classical music, because that's what they teach you in the lessons is classical music. And I started playing rock and roll, and I was jamming with rock bands. But I was frustrated because the classical music was very intellectually satisfying, but it didn't grab me emotionally. It wasn't intense. The rock music was emotional intense, but didn't have the complexity and sophistication of classical music. And one day I just said to myself, you know, I should listen to jazz. Just, you know, as it turned out, jazz became the focal point of my life. From, from, it, I mean, literally, I, even as a music writer, I was a jazz writer. That was my thing. And I played jazz, jazz. But the way it happened is I just by chance, there was a jazz club near where I was growing up in, in L.A. And I went there one night having no idea what to expect. The band gets on stage and they start the first song. It goes on forever. I mean, it just, it just, this song, five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, still going. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I had an aha moment there. I mean, I, I said to myself, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. And so, even though I was really good as a piano player, I had no clue how to play jazz and I had to teach myself. And a few years later, I was a jazz pianist. I made records, I produced records, you know, and so it changed the course of my life, but it basically boiled down to a long song. A long song can do that. So if the artist had just done the normal four minute cut of it, you'd just be, you'd be a, a consulting partner right now. <laughs> I would have made a lot more money. You know, yeah. probably, yeah, probably the worst decision I made in my life was going to that jazz club. <laughs> But it did change my life. It Absolutely. did change my life. Oh, thanks for sharing that. I, I had a, one more question on the chemicals. Is So pop music uh, famously has this four-chord formula, uh, where if you look through some of the most popular songs in the last 30, 40 years, it's the same four chords. But there, there is science behind that, right? And the question, uh, as a two-part question, number one was, I just want to make sure that I'm correct about the four chords. Yeah. And the second part was... Um, is there anything wrong with the fact that if you've hit gold, you just, because it is being milked, right? And if it's giving, again, people are getting that psychological benefit from it, clearly. Well, there's a good question is, to what extent do we need more complex songs? Okay. And it's easy for me to get on my high horse and say people should listen to more complicated music, but you raise a very good question. If, if, if people like a simpler song or a shorter song, why not? But what I think you'll find is, is if you look at the, the analysis of music's power on people, and people have studied this. You know, Leonard Meyer did this book years ago on, on what creates emotion in, in music. A number of people have analyzed this. What you find is if there's too much sameness, you lose the, the long-term power of it. Where a, a more complex song, you can listen to 
for more years. I mean, five, 10 years later, you, you, can, you can come back to it. It continues to, to, it, to develop new riches for you. The problem with the shorter stuff is, according to the theory, it doesn't build long-term loyalty. Now, is this true? Well, look at the music industry. And all these, these artists come, they have one hit and they can't have a follow-up. There's this, they call it the sophomore curse. And, and the record labels now have become very wary of promoting musicians because even if they get a hit, they, they found it's almost impossible to get a second hit or a third hit. And the, the musicians that have the long-term careers, like these old geezers named Dylan, Brian Wilson, McCartney, is it pure coincidence that they wrote more complicated songs? So I, I don't think it's just me saying, hey, listen to, to more complex music. I think there's actual data that would show you that musicians that do these simpler songs have shorter careers, they have less loyal fans, and, and the staying power and lasting impact is lower, whereas the musicians that reach higher push themselves and, and try to do things more than just four chords, they have longer careers and have a much more lasting cultural impact. So I, I do think you can make a persuasive case that, we, that four chords are fine, but we need a musical culture that gives people at least options to do more complex stuff and still get a record contract. Yeah. Because I fear that part of the reason why new music is dying is the record industry's dumbed it down. They, they use the argument that you alluded to, well, if these four cards work, let's do it again. Well, let's do it again. I, I also I, have an MBA. That's why. <laughs> you know, I, I met somebody who worked for one of the most successful marketing companies in the world. And he said, Ted, I want to show you our secret internal stuff. I'm not supposed to show outsiders this. And he had like this super duper top secret marketing handbook. And I'm not even going to tell you the company. It's a company you're, you, everyone knows of. And, and basically the formula they had for marketing boiled down to is if something works, you do it again and again and again, and you do not stop until it, it no longer works. Don't let anyone just, you know, even if someone says, Oh, we've already done this 30 times, shut that person up. Because according to the super secret handbook is if you've done it 30 times, you do it 31, 32 well, the music industry clearly got a copy of that handbook. You know, the people at the record labels. But it is a law of diminishing returns, and eventually you hit the brick wall. And the brick wall is exactly what you're seeing in the data now. It's people listening to the old songs, and they're giving up on the new songs. The new artists don't have staying power. They don't have the, the loyalty. And it really boils down to the fact that they took something that worked and pushed it too far. And I would suggest that the music industry is the leader on this, but the same thing's happening in Hollywood and a bunch of other creative fields as well. And, and so this idea that you can push it forever, well, there's, there's an expiration date on everything, not just milk and cheese. You know? uh, your, uh, this financial business background that you've talked about is really coming through because I've thrown these questions. You're like, well, actually, Look at the data. Look who's lasting the longest. Whose career is lasting the longest? And as you mentioned, the Rolling Stones are still touring. Top 10 uh, earners. Paul McCartney just celebrated his, uh, I believe, 80th. Huge uh, coming uh, audience for that. Um, I had a thought that I just want to add because, uh, as I mentioned, I was in, in Spain last month. I, I saw Gaudi's uh, uh, unfinished cathedral in Barcelona. It is an extraordinary experience, is it, it not? It, it was this is probably hyperbole. I think it's the greatest structure I've ever seen just in terms of detail. 
And the thought I had coming out of it, and I, I've told this to my wife probably 10 times now, I just, I can't stop thinking about it. And it, ha- it actually goes back to TikTok. And I'm quite active on Twitter and I'm capable of going viral on Twitter. But the problem, and you kind of touched on it, is those are not compounding actions, right? If I have a meme that a million people sees, that's not actually adding to anything. Whereas if I spent the same amount of time, uh, instead of being in the dopamine flywheel and just refreshing my feed, like actually working on something for that hour, I could be compounding. And this is what Gaudi did, right? He worked on the uh, Sagrada Familia for 43 years. It's still not finished. It's a, uh, but something you mentioned, people will remember him forever. His work will be remembered forever. Uh, and the, the question I had was, I was very concerned about TikTok, social media, and uh, how people are spending the majority of the entertainment time now, which is in these algorithmic push social feeds. It is so hard to sit down for 43 minutes and get work done, let alone 43 years. So my, my question is, if you're extrapolating as a futurist, we'll never see another Sagrada Familia again. Just based on that, the incentives are just not there. That's a depressing. I know. That's, that's a depressing observation. And I, all I can say is you fight this battle an individual at a time. I give people okay. advice, and this is sort of bizarre, but in the last few years, I get emails of people ask, asking me life advice. Now, why are, why are they coming to a music writer for life advice? That's dangerous. But I try to give them the best advice I can. Okay. And one of the things I tell them is always create a week plan for you. And we, at least one day of your week is towards a long-term goal. Okay. A long-term goal. You know, I, I, when I was younger, I only did long-term stuff. I wrote books. I worked on, on, on musical works that I thought would have lasting merit. Um, and only at a certain point I started doing, I got on Twitter actually unwillingly and I do for enjoyment now and I do the subjects, but I still constantly devote things to longer term. Now, what's the benefit of this? Well, let me tell you, I still get royalties from books I wrote in the 1980s. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm an old geezer now, but I'm and check this out, check this out. I just heard from uh, this woman who represents me two days ago. She said, Ted, a song of yours is going to be on the next episode of Better Call Song. I saw. Congratulations. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Now, I haven't seen it yet. So I, 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 I'm told that they go into a restaurant and there's piano music in the background. And suppose, I mean, like I said, I'm, 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 I'm not going to brag until I see it. But supposedly <laughs> this, this song I wrote... I wrote and recorded this song in the 1980s. And uh, uh, people look at me now and I'm Substack and Twitter and they think it's, it's all I'm doing this viral stuff. But basically the whole foundation was long-term projects. The whole foundation is long-term projects. So I know that there's a tremendous temptation for you, me, for all of us to have something that goes viral today. Have an impact this week. Be the talk of the town at the cocktail party tonight. But I tell people that at least one day a week, at least one day a week, devote your energy to, to first of all, sit down and decide what are your long-term goals? What do you want to make your life about over 10, 20, 30 years? And give at least a day a week to that. And if you don't, you're, you're, 
you're robbing our, yourself, you're robbing the, the greater culture, though, because what you're saying is, is so many people now are focused on, the, on the, this dopamine fix of, of getting attention immediately that, that creates a short-term mindset that, that pervades the whole culture. And that's a problem. That's definitely a problem. On that point, uh, do artists like Kendrick Lamar and Adele, who will go four or five years between albums, is that something to commend and clap your hands at? Or is that even not long enough? <laughs> Absolutely, I commend. Okay. I, I think you've got to give projects the time that they take. And, the, and people say, well, that's obvious, Ted. And I say, you may say it's obvious. You have no idea what it's like when you've had some success in life. Because people start approaching you every day, every day. I'm sure you get approached every day by hundreds of people. Probably my my, my email box, <laughs> my email box is like a minefield, and so it gets very hard once you've had any taste of success, even on the tiny little scale I have, which is is minute compared to the names you've just mentioned. There's a tendency to constantly run after the, the opportunity to jour that people toss you. So I, I commend people like Kendrick Lamar and all the other folks that, that take a long time on an album or a project or a book, because that's the right way to do it. And that's the lasting impact. And trust me, their legacy, when it's viewed over the long term, is not going to be on the, the viral tweet they had uh, on a certain summer day in 2022. It's going to be on those long term things. And, they, and, and the advice I give the individuals is make time for that, because the, the culture doesn't want to give you the time. And as soon as you start uh, deviating from it, they, they may even punish you, but it's the right thing to do for your long-term impact. So uh, a related question to that is, uh, again, I don't want to put you in the seat of, you know, giving life coach advice or career <laughs> advice, but having said that, you know, and you yourself have written about how you had to float your interest in the arts by kind of being this futurist, wasn't necessarily uh, your quote unquote passion. Where would you coach somebody going that wanted to enter the creatives now, but had the concern about financials? Well, I see this all the time. Well, even my sons, they're, they're, they, they, I've got sons, nephews, they all have the same question is, do I follow my bliss or do, or do I become practical? Yeah. Do I try to maximize my income or do I try to have a beneficial cultural impact? I mean, these are, do I be an artist? Or should I be an investment banker? Uh, should I make a record or launch a hedge fund? I mean, these are all, these are questions that, that everybody asks. The advice, once again, and I do give advice to people. <laughs> I probably should be licensed to do that. But what I tell people is by the time you're 30, have at least one skill that people will pay you for. Something you do that people will pay you for. And then on the side, something that, that excites you and enlightens you and has some sort of positive impact, at least on you or the world around you. Maybe for some people, it's the same thing that does both. Maybe following their bliss, they also make a billion dollars. I'm a little skeptical with that, but I do believe it happens in some instances. But my advice to, to, to everyone is follow your bliss, but make sure you have at least something that pays the rent. Uh, and, and if you're lucky like me, you can, you can have some success in both those fields, but at least you'll, uh, you, you can, you will have, you'll feel good about what you're doing and also be able to pay the bills each month. And, and so that's, <laughs> that's my, my simple advice to the next generation. 
Well, it kind of dovetails with the work on one long-term thing a week, right? Because you can still do this other stuff, quote unquote, have a proper income to and, uh, and achieve other professional ambitions. But working on that one thing uh, a week, you never know how far that will compound, right? Absolutely. I've written very successful books while having extremely demanding uh, endeavors elsewhere. Where I mean, I, I, I've written a very successful book, which I did by spending a little bit of time every weekend. Yep. And some days only one day of the weekend. <laughs> I was so busy. But it can't be done. It can't it, be done. It, it, it can be done. Also, my older brother is uh, an example of that, too. He's a, a, a very successful poet and literary writer, but he also had a business career. And then we shouldn't punish people for this. But culture wants to put people in little boxes and pigeonholes. Yeah. People are more multi-talented than the culture allows. Everybody has more talents than their job allows them to apply. And, and we should create a society that lets those different talents flourish and develop as well. Right. Um, and a, re- a related teaching or philosopher uh, that kind of touches on this topic, uh, not, not directly, but Rene Girard, who was teaching at Stanford when you were there, I believe, uh, but you yourself have spoken about you never took his classes and later in life you've read his works. Uh, he, he did mimetic desire and the idea that what we want is basically copying what other people are doing. Um, and that plays on to also finding the right careers or things you want to pursue, right? Is do you actually want to do something because you've thought through it from first principles or do you want to do it because someone else is doing it? And basically I have two questions. The first question is you talk about mimetic desire and how you've seen it within the music industry. Uh, rock artists uh, using, uh, you know, destroying their guitars as kind of uh, the equivalent of scapegoating, the scapegoating effect. Um, and then also um, mimetic desire as how you're seeing it in entertainment. I'd love for you to kind of expound on those two things. Well, not everybody knows the name Rene Girard. Right. In fact, a few years ago, almost nobody knew the name Rene Girard. But nowadays, that name is everywhere, and people take him seriously, and for good reason. Peter Thiel will tell you he made a billion dollars on his, his being the first investor in Facebook, and he did it because of a philosopher in Rene Girard. So people go, oh, wait a second, now you, you can make a billion dollars by setting velocity? This, this catches people's attention. And when I was at Stanford, Rene Girard taught there, and, and I, I would see him from time to time, but very few people took his classes. I didn't. And he had a book that was, that was well-known, The Violence and the Sacred. And I actually read this book back in the day. And I, after the first two chapters, I just tossed it away. I said, this book is garbage. Now, why did I say that? I later changed my mind. But why did I say that? Well, he had a, Gerard has these theories about human behavior. The first one is mimetic desire, that people decide what they do, not because they think about it, they imitate other people. Now you understand why Thiel invested in Facebook. And okay, the people, if you imitate your friends, maybe I should invest in Facebook. So anyway, the first idea was you imitate other people. Another very powerful and a powerful idea of Gerard's is reciprocal violence that you have these, these, these situations in which society begins to resemble a mafia. Uh, you know, they took one of our guys, we're going to take two of theirs, kind of, you know, kind of thinking. Yeah. 
You're and Sicilian. You're half Sicilian. I'm Sicilian. I, I, I can I can I can I can do the the Italian accent because I'm Sicilian. Um, there's another idea that the the way these battles of reciprocal violence end is both parties agree to take a scapegoat. Yeah. And punish the scapegoat, and that diffuses the violent energy. Jesus and, being a popular example. That's right. And the scapegoat is both admired and punished. And it's hard to figure this. The scapegoat, a hero, we're going a little bit of both. Anyway, Girard had all these ideas, and some of them very banal. Like the idea that you imitate other people. And it's a very banal idea. I mean, it's a very boring idea. And so my first reaction when I read Girard is, you know, I studied sociology at Oxford at that point. And they laughed at the idea that imitation was a social force. I mean, I read Durkheim and the, and the founders of sociology mocked the notion of imitation. They thought that was the, 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 the most simple-minded explanation you can give. So here's Gerard. He's talking about imitation and reciprocal violence and all this. And the, the other thing I really disliked about his book is he gave no evidence. I'm looking for clinical studies. I'm looking for peer-reviewed papers. And what Gerard does is to prove his thesis he analyzes ancient Greek tragedy in the Bible. And what is this? You know, I was so skeptical. If, hey, Brene, if you want to convince me that you're right, you need something more than an ancient Greek play to do this. Okay, so that's my mindset. But then years later, I start seeing that what he said was true. It was absolutely, I mean, look at, look at what's happening in our culture right now. The reciprocal violence between uh, the, the, the two political parties, the escalating and the scapegoating. And so, and, and the mimetic desire is, is pervasive. I mean, social media is all about mimetic desire. People benchmarking what they do based on what other people do. And, and so, Gerard was right. Now, he didn't go out the way I would. I would have had, actually, clinical studies and data analysis. So, Gerard is one of the most profound thinkers out there. And, and he, he's beginning to be picked up on, even people in the business world now. Probably hedge fund managers are reading Rene Girard, you know? It's an amazing world. My only regret is I could have actually taken a course. I could have had conversations with him, and I lost that opportunity. So uh, that's a humbling admission on my part. But I make up for it now, and I draw on him heavily. Right. If you read my music history book. You will see how often I've, I return to Rene Girard to help me understand things because he's, he's a goldmine of wisdom for, for figuring out what's... Now, he never mentioned rock music at any point in, in any of his books. But if you look at a rock concert with, with the, the, the destruction of musical instruments and all that, it's, it's exactly a ritual of... Uh, uh, exactly the kind of ritual he describes that diffuses violence in a society. It's almost as if he was hanging out at rock concerts. So, uh, Wait, could you so tease I, that I out a little bit? I strongly recommend Gerard. So I strongly recommend people read Rene Gerard. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, thank you for that. Uh, the, 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 the summary on your thoughts on, uh, on Gerard. I was curious if you could pull the thread on that rock concert a bit more. It's like, why is it the destroying of the guitars representative of a resolution of, uh, of violence? Okay, well, let, let's. Let me, let me try to articulate that. What Rene Girard says is that the rituals in society are almost like executions. Okay. Where someone is treated both as a hero, but also a, a magnet for violence. 
And so you, I go back to the history of rock and roll where you had this great summer of love, but very soon there was all this violence at, at Altamont where people were shot. Uh, there's, and the rock star feels almost compelled to destroy something on stage, not just with the pyrotechnics, but destroying the instrument or setting something on fire. Uh, if you look, they did a, um, a survey of the most popular rock photos of all time. And almost every one of the top 10 is something is getting destroyed. That's it's like the cover of that Clash album. Something is getting destroyed. And, and so the, the clear idea is the rock concert allowed people to target their violent emotions up to a limit point where you should stop short of actually killing somebody. But in fact, people often did get killed. And then I give the example. I, I list off a bunch of bands. The Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Beach Boys. I mean, just go down the list, you know, and I, and I give The Doors, the Sex Pistols, the Nirvana, whatever. What do these bands have in common? And people will tell me, Ted, that's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I said, no, every one of those had a member die before the age of 40. Oh, okay. Every one of those bands had a member die, and none of them from natural causes. Now, is that just coincidence? <laughs> is that? No, people are attracted to rock because of its destructive power. Okay. And, and so the, the idea that all the famous rock bands lose a member, or sometimes more than one member, uh, is not coincidence. This is, people are playing with fire with rock and roll. You want to understand why Rene Girard explains this. This is the release people are seeking. This is the, the diffusing ritual that, that and, and what Gerard says is fascinating. He says, these rituals are more important in violent times. And so I look at, at you know, the Woodstock and Altamont. They happened the same time where riots in, in Paris. There was almost a revolution in Paris. Yeah. The, uh, there were the, the, protest. the college protests in the United States. At the very moment where the culture is most angry, this musical reenactment in the rock concert diffuses the violent energies in society. Right. So, I mean, I take this seriously. I mean, I know that Rod, Gerard's not just a theory. It's a valuable explanatory tool that allows us to figure out what actually happened and why do people go to these mass events. Is there any parallels uh, between, well, not necessarily parallels, but the whole Tupac, Biggie, when they were killed within six months of each other? Uh, Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. The, whole, the whole idea of rap is to build its appeal on Gerard. It's like rock, is we want to play with fire and get that intensity of experience, but we stopped just short of somebody getting killed. But that's, that's, a, that's a hard line to draw. Right. How do you get people up to these peak energy levels just to stop short of violence and then just cut it off there? That's why, I mean, I, I was just wrote this article on Frank Zappa the other day uh, and explained that he had to give up touring for you because a fan jumped up on stage and injured him. A, a crazy fan. I mean, this, and... Let me tell you, this doesn't happen at the knitting convention. This doesn't happen at the crossword puzzle gathering. No, the, the, these, these rituals are designed to stir up these feelings, and the artist is playing with fire. And so with hip-hop, it's no different than rap. And I could give many other examples from music. Music is a dangerous profession because of the emotions it taps in. I want to take a small, uh, well, this is a pretty large pivot because that was quite serious uh, a topic, but thank you for sharing those thoughts. I want to kind of get back to music and uh, technology because uh, over, I think, the past year, you've been the leading writer on that. And 
and also your entire career, but it's the Substack exposure has been fantastic. So actually, the question I haven't seen uh, you address, maybe I just missed it. I'm curious about your thoughts about AirPods. So there's a hu- more than 100 million units of AirPods have been moved. And it, it's created some type of audio revolution. But the question is, what is that audio revolution? And is it good or bad? Well, let's go back to the answer. Let's go back to the oxytocin. Because we were talking about the, the, the hormone that you bond with people when you listen to music. So music is, brings people together uh, in a very fundamental way. I mean, physiologically, it brings people together. And for the longest time, the music culture was a channel for that because musical events were ones that you shared with other people. But now, musical events, you know, you know I got these headphones here. You know, you're, you're, music is isolating now. You plug something into your ear, you stare into a screen, and it's something consumed individually. And that's great. I'm happy for people, but we're losing one of the most powerful contributors of music to society, which brings people together and bonds them and unifies them and diffuses violence Uh and, and, and promotes a lot of good things. And so... I, I use all the technology myself. I mean, if you looked around me, I've got all the latest tech somewhere, you know, in my home. But still, I think we need to have a place for live music, especially in the aftermath of the pandemic when people are just streaming things. And, and I believe that, that the same thing is true of movies. We need to have movie theaters where people go together to experience things communally. Uh, and so I'm a big believer in these things not because I'm an old timer and I like the way things used to be. And maybe I am an old timer. Maybe I do like the way things used to be, but actually I'm, I'm, I love new tech. But the fact is we lose something when all our culture is consumed individually, plugged in, uh, rather than as a shared social experience. That's a great point. Um, and I definitely have felt that. It's uh, quite isolating when you have both the uh, partners, like, my wife and I, we have our AirPods on, listening, yeah. watching separate things. Happens every, happens basically every night. Yeah, no. <laughs> you're even, you're even when you're with people, you're apart from them. Yeah. Um, you go into a restaurant now, and everybody is, you know, they're even when people are together, they're isolated. I and and, I'll, and this is a completely different subject. That does contribute to the violence we have in society. Okay. You know, we live in a very violent society. And a lot of it is people are plugged into their own imaginary worlds. That can't be, that can't be healthy for your psyche if your development years are all you isolated, just communing with your own work, your own imaginary fantasies. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so the I have just a few more questions here, and the, the next one was related to technology and 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 music, or at Hollywood and entertainment in general. You wrote this uh, great piece about how music and entertainment have driven technological developments and like to much more of a degree than anybody realizes. Um, you started with William Shockley, uh, how uh, the transistor radio, basically the, the funding and the demand for that product uh, was put in by an entertainment company, right? They allowed literally Silicon Valley to be created. I was wondering if you could walk through a couple of those examples and then project out and say, how will entertainment influence you know, the next major platforms, whether that be VR, AR, Metaverse, ETC? The way I conceptualize the world right now, I tell people there's a war between Southern California and Northern California. 
Well, what do you mean, Ted? How can there be a war? I said, if you, in my sphere of the world, culture, music, entertainment, there's a war in which Northern California is Silicon Valley and technocracy and tech people. Southern California is Hollywood, record labels, and creative people. And they're loggerheads. In fact, if you want to understand the battle over copyrights, what you've got to realize is Disney and Hollywood, Southern California wants the protection as long as possible. You know, Google, Facebook, they want to put up any content they can tomorrow. And it's amazing how many battles exist because Southern California and Northern California have different views of the world. And I want to make a few observations. One is Silicon Valley is winning this war. And I will just say this bluntly because they're, they're smarter than the people in Hollywood. This is, this is a... It's an awkward thing to say, but I, and I, I know this. I mean, I, I remember when I was at Stanford Business School and in Silicon Valley, we laughed at, I, this is painful to say, we laughed at, the, at, at, these, at these Hollywood companies. We called it the idiot nephew phenomenon, where somebody, he starts, uh, somebody starts a record label or whatever, movie studio, whatever, and then it comes time to bring in the next generation. Do they hire the best people they can find? No, they give the job to their idiot nephew. I'm gonna, I'll write about that at some point. I'm going to write about <laughs> the idiot, idiot nephew theory of entertainment. The subject line it, is perfect. That's gonna no, no, but it, and this is a painful thing for me to say. But the fact is the Silicon Valley people are so much smarter. And so that's why Apple controls music. This is why Google controls the, took the news, all the writing business out of business. Silicon Valley has just destroyed every one of these creative industries. And it didn't need to happen. It absolutely didn't need to happen. If the people in Southern California hadn't put the idiot nephew in charge of the business, it would have been very different. And so I give the history of this in that article you mentioned, where I show that Hollywood actually created Silicon Valley. You know, Silicon Valley, if you ask people, what is the founding moment, they'll point to Hewlett and Packard's garage. Well, Hewlett and Packard got together and they started the company. What nobody tells you is they got a contract from Disney. Disney was coming out with a music movie, Fantasia. And to get the best possible music, they gave Hewlett and Packard the money to start their business. People will say, well, what about uh, other parts of the industry? Well, the storage business is so big. That's one of the key components of Silicon Valley is storage, data storage. But it was really came out of Ampex, the first major storage company. And that was funded by Bing Crosby, a singer who needed magnetic tape to do his radio show so he could do it uh, off hours and then just play back the tape. So he needed higher quality data storage. So Bing Crosby launched the storage revolution in Silicon Valley. And then you look at the semiconductor came out of the transistor, which was invented by William Shockley. And the first major market for it was the transistor radio. Music built the semiconductor industry. And, and I, you know, I give many other examples. You look at Apple. People say Apple, great tech company. What they forget is Apple had a long, dry spell and was struggling. And then Steve Jobs came back, and the product that turned around was the iPod for music. At one point, that was half of Apple's revenues came out of music. So, in fact, the, one of the points I make is if Hollywood had kept these things in-house, they would be Silicon Valley. Yeah. If Disney hadn't started Hewlett Packard and brought the thing, hired Hewlett Packard, 
You know, if, if Bing Crosby hadn't funded Ampex, but had founded Ampex in his own Hollywood studio, all these things could have happened in Southern California. And they let it go. For a while, they still competed. RCA was a major technical powerhouse up until 1970. They invent all the, RCA was a record label, but it was also the apple of its day. It was the leading consumer electronics company. They laid the groundwork for, for LCD screens. They, they did innovations in computers. All this, uh, all the sound technologies were coming out of record labels. And so there's a war now. It's a war the entertainment industry is losing. But this, the history of it is such it's under slightly different circumstances. Hollywood would be the tech center of the world right now. And because of their sheer bad mistakes made by idiot nephews, they, they never happen. So... Then the question is, is there any chance for the creatives to dictate the next wave? Or is there there's the cats out the bag? Well, there's, there's no substitution for good decisions at the top. Yeah. You and I have both been around enough successful businesses. And, and I know this, this sounds banal, but it's true. If the CEO is smart, the business will flourish. If the CEO is a fool, no matter what advantages or head start they have, the thing will all collapse. And so I keep on saying this in my writing. I said, we need visionaries in the music industry. We need visionaries. We need visionary leaders. And, and people think I'm just making some truism. Well, that's obvious. When this, this, is, this is more important than you realize. If the people running the record labels don't have vision, well, that's how we got in the place we are now, because the last big innovations in music technology from a record label were the Sony Walkman and the Compactus. So they stopped investing 30 years ago. They stopped innovating. Well, now they're, they're, they're in a mess. But it took, they milked it for 30 years. So the way you fix this, and the only way you fix this, is the entertainment industry must bring in talent, they must reward people that have vision and they must have leaders that can make good decisions to, to, to wrest the power back from Apple and Google. Yeah. I don't think it's going to happen, but it still could happen. Even today, the entertainment industry, if it had good leaders, could set its own destiny. And why is that important? I think it's better for music to be run by music people. I think it's better for movies to be run by cinema lovers. I don't think it's good to have technocrats control the creative world. So I, I would like to see Hollywood get stronger and better, but it all begins with good decisions at the top. I guess then uh, appreciate your time. So I just had the one last question, which was uh, more of a rapid fire on artists that I listen to because I don't listen to as much music now. Uh, I know you do two to three hours a day. So I was just curious about some of the popular music I listen to and uh, I love your thoughts on uh, first Drake. <laughs> Well, you know, you're, you're okay. Now you're going to get me off in a, in, in, in off on tangents. Um, in terms of, I mean, I, I will listen to Drake comes out with a new album. I will listen to it. Okay. But you, you got to realize my whole life is about promoting people that aren't already well known to 300 million people. Okay. So every one of the artists you mentioned, I'll say the same thing. God bless them. I commend them. I've heard some stuff there as I like, but still I would like folks to listen to somebody uh, who, who isn't already a household name. Okay. But God bless Drake. But may, may, may his record sales continue to prosper so that he can have a comfortable retirement. 
All right, so I'm actually going to skip the other names then and just ask a more general question. Is there any album in the last 10 years from one of these super artists where you're like, okay, this is actually a piece of art that in 100 years from now, people will look back on and uh, appreciate? Well, you know, I have a, a, a bunch of artists that, that I like that are sort of on the fringe of super popularity, but they're, none of them are, are, are like these real blockbuster names. So, I mean... I love Kendrick Lamar, but I would say, hey, you know, Kamasi Washington played sax on his album. Check out Kamasi as well. And, and, and I will love Lady Gaga, but I will say, well, listen to Amy Winehouse, because she was doing some of the things Lady Gaga did, and if Amy had lived, she would have had that kind of impact. Or I, I, will, I just will go down the list of, of other artists out there that are, are selling a lot of records, but there's a lot of things under the radar screen that I'd much prefer people to be listening to right, right. now. And, and, and what I would tell people in general and the cultural consumption is to go outside their own comfort zone. Because the, the, what's the difference between art and entertainment? And people say, well, there's no difference, Ted. It's just an opinion. Someone can say that's art or entertainment. It's just your opinion, what it is. And I go, no, no, there's a fundamental difference. Entertainment gives the audience exactly what it wants, okay? That's what an entertainer does. The entertainer figures out what the art, what the audience wants and gives it to them. And so we'll do the same thing over and over again. You'd like that Spider-Man movie? We'll give you another Spider-Man. You like that, 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 that hit song? We'll give you another one that sounds just like it. See, but art doesn't operate that way. If you deal with a great work of art, you have to adapt to the work of art. You have to adapt to it. I don't know if you've ever had experience reading one of the great classics, like Moby Dick. It's about whaling, catching whales, or War and Peace about Napoleon invading Russia. Within a page or two, you start thinking, boy, I'm going to have to adjust to this book. <laughs> I have to adjust to the artist. So the artist is not an entertainer, and it's a very fundamental difference. Now, let me ask a question. Which of those two experiences is more valuable? Having entertainment that gives you exactly what you want and expect, or the artistic experience that broadens your horizons, expands your mind, and takes you to places you never thought you would go. See, we know the answer. You don't even have to answer that. We know that that artistic experience is more mind-expanding than the entertainment experience. So that's why I'm being a bit of a jerk and saying I'm not every one of these hit stars you tell me about, I'm going to say they're great, but, but also go to something beyond your comfort zone. In music, in books, in movies, every aspect of our culture, even in your, even in your life experience. I often took jobs outside my, cultures, my comfort zone. Yeah. Someone would hire me to do something in, in, the, in the business sphere, and it was at the very limits of what I, I thought I could handle. I would take those jobs. Because if you do not go outside your comfort zone, your life gets narrower and narrower. If you continually go outside your comfort zone, your life gets broader and broader and bigger and bigger. And that's, that's the lesson here. It's a music lesson, but it's a much larger lesson. Too. I, will, I will answer directly your question about the challenging ones, because there are two off the top of my head. I love how you framed it. I've started the movie 2001 probably 30 times. Never got past the first 20 minutes. Because to your exact point, I never thought about it that way, but it's like, it was asking me to adapt to Kubrick's <laughs> ideas, right? And then the book- throwing out their, yeah. their gloves and stuff. I just wasn't ready for it. And then the book that I've started 
dozens of times, never got past 50 pages, is Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. And uh, I know that it's one of those books that everyone has to read. I just, I can't. <laughs> I just can't. But those are classic examples. You know, I've, I've read Infinite Jest from cover to cover, okay. including those painful footnotes. And the, the, the experience of reading that book is exactly what I described. You get into this, okay, I have to live by David Foster Wallace's rules on this. Computer. You'll be reading the book and there'll be a footnote. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll go to the back of the book. The footnote is as long as a short story. Hey, the footnote's in the middle of the sentence. Okay, now, do I finish the sentence? And part of the experience is painful. I will not deny it. It's infuriating. But it, what, it's also brilliantly mind-expanding. Yeah. And so if you do not, and I deliberately create those experiences for myself. I deliberately create experiences for myself that are painful and outside my comfort zone and force me to think in ways I haven't thought before. Those have been the best decisions of my life. Frank, those have absolutely been the best decisions of my life. And so I just, was, I, I'm not telling you, you have to go read all of Infinite Jest, but at some point every year, you should take one really difficult book that really forces you to adapt to the book. And I just, you, you will, if you do that consistently, you, you will eventually say, boy, I'm glad I did. And this was, there, there was nothing in the entertainment industry that would have ever given me that would have matched that experience. I'm opening Infinite Just Up tonight. Okay. If you want to see a, a good intro, go see the movie, The End of the Tour, which is a movie about David Foster Wallace and writing Infinite Jest. And, and the beauty of this movie is that it came from a Rolling Stone reporter that spent a week with David Foster Wallace. And every word that the character in the movie says in the movie actually came from something he actually said right. on the interviewer's tape. And so that movie will give you a, a, a quick immersion in his worldview. Uh, and then after that, if you want to go back to heaven, it just, but yeah, I, guess I tell everybody, go outside the comfort zone. Go outside the comfort zone. It, it's the best thing you'll ever do. I love that. And um, I do want to leave with this last question. It has to do with the title of your Substack, The Honest Broker, tedjoya.substack.com. Please subscribe. But why is it called The Honest Broker? Because I believe the lesson in it is extremely profound. Well, as you know, I did all these business projects and, and, and they, were, they were difficult ones. I did, I, I did all, and all over the world, all over the world. Uh, and so this one brought me to China. And I'm trying to set up a distribution network and, a, and an operation there for, for my, the people that are hiring me. As my host, I've got one of the richest guys in Hong Kong. And he's introducing me to his contacts. These are powerful people. And everybody's giving me advice. But the advice doesn't add up. And I'm just at my wit's end, and I'm looking at it. China. People are saying, well, you know, your intellectual property is going to be stolen if you go there. Uh, the, the government won't protect you. There's no corporate law. And everyone's telling me all the ways I could go bad. And I'm almost at my wit's end. And then I meet this drunk Australian guy at a bar. And he starts talking. And he's bragging about he's been working in Asia for decades, and he knows all the secrets. He knows all the tricks. 
And, and he said, you stupid Americans, you think you understand it here, but you don't even have a clue. And I said, well, wise guy, well, if you're so smart, you tell me how I solve my, my business problem. He said, I'll tell you, you need the honest broker. The honest broker? What do you mean, the honest broker? So you need the honest broker. Well, this is like the Wizard of Oz or something? And he says, no, no, this is every city and region in China. There are people who are honest brokers. Now, what do you mean by that? He says, they are people that everybody trusts. Everybody in the community trusts them. And they will help you out. They're not going to be an investor in your business. He said, he said they're not going to invest. They might not even ask for payment. But they will give you advice you can trust, and they will introduce you to other people you can trust. And if you don't know the honest broker, you're going to get totally screwed. But in an environment where there's no corporate law, there's no protection of IP, you need to find the honest broker. Because the honest broker plays the long-term game. Everything is built on their trust. And I said, well, I don't pay them? He said, well, you may eventually pay them back. Years later, they'll want to introduce you. You'll be part of their network. But they play the long-term game based on trust, honesty, and personal authority. Find the honest broker. And so I did this. And then, this is the funny thing. This is the best part of the whole story. Is I'm going back and I'm, I'm writing on jazz and I'm writing music and I'm a journalist. Because this is the other side of my life. You know, the business I know that. And then I realized, I said, you know, I need to be an honest broker in my own profession. All these journalists are publishing stuff, but nobody trusts journalists anymore. Nobody trusts the news. Nobody trusts the experts. And I realized that the single most important thing I could do as a writer would be to become an honest broker myself. People would trust me and I would speak honestly and I, and I, and I tell it the way it is. Uh, and I don't look for personal benefit or gain. I, I'm not out there to maximize my income. Often I'll even give it away for free. And so when I launched my Substack, I called it the honest broker because that's, that's my goal in life. I want to be an honest broker. And that's what the society, society needs more honest brokers. So, you know, if we make a start, who knows? It might lead to something beautiful. Ted, you have been delivering. I will say that. And I cannot thank you enough for your time. This was, uh, it's as mind expanding as listening to uh, a jazz song for an hour and a half straight. So. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a high goal. Thank you very much. This was fun. Yeah, maybe we'll do it again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ted. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care.